welcome to unitedinstitute.org podcast where we feature successful professionals and scholars. Welcome to the unitedinstitute.org world podcast. I'm Jeffrey Nutt, your host for today. Our guest is Dr. Mark W. Cannon on this segment. He's one of a handful of living Americans who have served in high office in all three branches of the federal government. He earned his Ph.D. from Harvard, chaired the Brigham Young University Political Science Department, then led the Institute for Public Administration in New York City, before serving in a U.S. Senator's office, as well as working as the top aide to a member of Congress, he was eventually recruited to serve as the first incumbent to the position of Administrative Assistant, now known as Counselor to the Chief Justice of the United States. At the time, Chief Justice Warren E. Berger. He served in that capacity for 13 years, a feat that has never been replicated thus far. Then, as if that wasn't enough, Dr. Cannon directed the Commission on the Bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution. Dr. Cannon assisted the Chief Justice in fulfilling his statutory and leadership duties as the Chief Administrative Officer of the Federal Judiciary. He was the only court staff person who would annually accompany the Justices to the State of the Union Address by the President of the United States before Congress in the U.S. Capitol. Inside the court, I can say this from personal experience having worked for Dr. Cannon. Dr. Cannon, you were known unofficially as the 10th Justice. You even invited me before I wrapped up my judicial internship in your office. You invited me to write a book for a justice, but I had to leave the country in order to pursue the Fulbright at Oxford, for which you had nominated me. Thank you so much for what you've done to help me and for what you have done to help the United States, Dr. Cannon. Today, it's your birthday. Happy birthday, Dr. Cannon. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to uh, be brought back into contact with you, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, the uh, uh, last uh, dealings we had when uh, I had one of the justices ask if, uh, say, he had a short uh, project where he needed some uh, talent, and did I have one of those young people who are my interns and who are so talented uh, to be able to help him? And uh, I contacted you uh, first, uh, and you, unfortunately, you're... Uh, you're uh, activities with your uh, uh, going abroad uh, then for education and uh, Fulbright uh, prevented you from doing so. So I got another person, but I've always had a very high regard for you, and I'm glad to, to hear about this uh, work that you're doing on the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cannon, for for mentioning mentioning that, and, and it was such an honor to work with you and to have you today is such a special honor. How did you get the job at the court? 
Well, uh, as you said, I was at uh, New York with this private nonprofit uh, think tank, which was the grandfather of the whole American public administration movement. And we had a lot of interesting projects abroad and in the U.S. Uh, and I, uh, well, I won't go. <laughs> I restrained myself from mentioning two or three just because they were interesting. But uh, it was interesting. But I read in the New York Times one day that uh, uh, Chief Justice Berger had been in, in town and was giving a speech, and he mentioned that. Congress had created several new positions uh, to help uh, the uh, uh, judiciary modernize and uh, improve its administration for the consumers of justice. And uh, uh, the, the Chief Justice urged people with uh, uh, what they thought were appropriate uh, talents and experience and interest to apply for these new positions. I was quite curious because the novelty of the uh, emerging uh, activity in judicial administration was somewhat comparable to our institutional uh, initiative early in the century. So of, did uh, the whole public administration movement before the universities adopted it. So did did the court give you a lot of time to to? Oh, notice to to well, prepare for your interview. The, well, uh, they you know after I'd, I'd made the application, uh, then a couple of months later, uh, I got a telephone call from General Roland Kirks, the director of the administrative office of the U.S. Courts, uh, who was the secretary of a commission that uh, Chief Justice Berger had created of very high-level judges and uh, 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 a former uh, civil service commission chairman. And uh, he asked uh, on a Friday morning if I could come down that afternoon. And I think maybe they were trying to test me, but to get from New York to Washington is a very complicated and a very time-consuming project, however you go. And uh, I had some other appointments, and. Uh, begged off by saying, uh, you know, I, was, I had appointments so I was not in a position to cancel and uh, that uh, I'd be happy to come down the next morning, which was Saturday, if the Chief Justice worked on Saturday. And then, yes, come down at 10.30 tomorrow morning. He's obviously talking with the Chief Justice. Now, did you have to learn very quickly then? You had less than 24 hours to prepare for the interview. How did you learn fast about the position? Was there any way to do that quickly? Obviously, this was uh, before uh, in 1972. This was before uh, the computer era. People didn't even know what a computer was. Uh, and uh, so there's no way of going to Google and finding out uh, what the history of this uh, position was. Uh, but uh, having worked with Senator Bennett, I uh, phoned down and to his uh, chief of staff and explained the situation, asked if he could get me some background on the creation of the case. Uh, he said he'd be happy to. They would not be in in the morning. Stick, he'd stick on the door. I'd come down on the first uh, bus and uh, would uh, pick it off and then scan through it. And in that scanning, I found that one 
third of the House of Representatives had voted against giving the Chief Justice this uh, new top position. And uh, uh, that, I think, was heavily from the, the previous uh, year, few years' history before he was in, in office, where the Congress kept uh, alleging that the judiciary was taking over their congressional powers, their legislative powers. So did that did that help you? That information help you during the interview? Well, well, he seemed a little surprised. He didn't know that when I told it to him. I think a he was uh, impressed that I'd I'd learned that, <laughs> uh, and and was uh, you know the kind of person who could get key information. Uh, B a little distressed to know that uh, it was that difficult to get things through the Congress. Uh, so, uh, yes, I, I think it was in the net uh, help uh, uh, in terms of focusing on our biggest challenge at that time, which was winning friendship with the Congress. Now, you had a special relationship with Chief Justice Berger. Was it sort of like a father-son relationship? Well, not initially. I mean, he was uh, a kind of a formal person. Uh, our I love to be able to laugh at life, <laughs> and I remember it was about two months after I'd been with him when I first got him to laugh at something about the Federal Judicial Center, and then we were really very cordial from then on, and it was like a father-son relationship. He was a so, deal older, and I, uh, mm -hmm. I respected the enormously the many ideas he had that were creative ideas to improve the process of uh, judicial functioning. Now, did you actually ever have an occasion to meet the newest justice, Justice Neil Gorsuch? Well, yes. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court is a little bit different than many institutions in the government. And there's a certain amount of family, and I was a historic figure because I was the first one in. So they have invited me to every installation of a new justice uh, since 1972 up to and in, including this past year uh, when uh, Chief, when Justice uh, Gorsuch was appointed. And so I, I was very delighted to be able to meet him and talk with him. I d deliberately uh, waited till the near the end of the line so I wasn't being pushed by the, all the people behind uh, trying to get to him and then had a little more time to talk to them for a few minutes, no, which I have to do because I'm a very strong defender mm -hmm. of religious liberty, and he is, I think, the strongest defender of religious liberty in modern time at the court. Now, there's a pending nominee to the court, Justice, well, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, and I was just wondering, would you feel comfortable indicating whether you think he might be a good Justice, if he's confirmed by the Senate, Dr. Kim? Well, well, certainly from the standpoint of the number of opinions he's written and their quality, he is an outstanding candidate for the judiciary. Also, he uh, believes in uh, the, the real Constitution, the Constitution that was written by the founders uh, as having important uh, values that uh, need to still be followed. And in that way, he will wind up, uh, since the original founders were very strong for religious liberty, 
he'll wind up defending uh, that uh, the Constitution in regard to religious liberty as now, well as other things. Now, there there were some you alluded to uh, the fact that about 30 percent of the con of, of the Congress had voted against the creation of the position of administrative assistant, now counselor to the chief justice when it was formed, and that there were some challenges uh, that existed uh, in terms of perhaps um, that relationship between Congress and, and the judiciary. Um, can you comment on some of the more difficult challenges that you faced when you were at the Supreme well, Court? Let, let me say this. Uh, uh, but kind of by surprise, we got into really serious discussions when I was called in for that interview. Nobody was there, no secretaries. If his law clerks were there, they were up in separate offices. And we just had a chance to talk and no interruptions. And uh, it took eight hours. We went through an uh, enormous number of ideas that uh, showed that this could be potentially a very fruitful period. If uh, if we could get everything worked out, now the, I, I, the could I could I could yeah. I uh, pause for just a moment? We're going to go yeah. to a commercial break, and we will be right back with Dr. Mark W. Cannon. Do you love your lawyer? Jeffrey G. Knott and Associates PLLC uses the law to help businesses and individuals throughout the world. Visit jnotlaw.com or call two four eight two two zero one five zero one. UnitedInstitute.org is pleased to offer a series of self-paced online courses and simulations that help professionals become effective, productive, and creative. Visit UnitedInstitute.org. We're back with the UnitedInstitute.org World Podcast. This is Jeffrey Nutt with Dr. Mark W. Cannon. Dr. Cannon, we are so honored to have you today on our podcast, and you were just about ready to tell us a little bit about how you addressed a challenge that you were facing when you arrived at the court. I think it may have had to do something with some of the adversarial relationship that may have existed between the legislative branch in the uh, Senate and House Judiciary Committees. Uh, and and their and their their uh, relationship with the judiciary. If if you could comment on what was your proposed solution to that? You bet. Well, let me say that at the end of the, my first year, I reviewed a, a, a list of our goals, and in every area where there was no requirement of congressional action. We had made some accomplishments, uh, even though modest in some cases. In every area that required congressional action, zero, zero. Uh, they were not interested in what we felt we needed, et cetera. Uh, so uh, the, uh, and just by comparison, Chief Justice Warren before us had complained that he he had less staff than a congress uh, freshman congressman, and uh, so so you know this was a, 
a problem from the past as well, but uh, uh, we're still dealing with it. Okay, now I I had to think carefully because there was an editorial writer at the Washington Post who assumed automatically that if you ever saw a judge talking with a congressman, they were hatching a deal to exchange votes, a vote on a judicial case for a vote on a, an appropriation or some other benefit of the for the judiciary. It's absurd, but nevertheless, uh, he, he, this was his attitude that they should never talk historically when the, the court had met in the Capitol and uh, the, there they had much more cordial relationship. But anyway, uh, so I thought, how? We, we have to have some way of um, creating a meeting that is outside of Washington, probably at Williamsburg, and as a, as a sponsor that's independent, probably preferably slightly liberal or more li liberal, just to because the Congress was a Democratic Congress, and they'd be less suspicious of the idea if it was uh, something like Brookings. I went to Brookings with the ideas. You're talking about the Brookings Institution, right? Well, the Brookings Institute actually was one of the childs of the Institute of Public Administration, New York, uh, one of the children, and and. Uh, they they do studies on uh, major policy issues. So did you have a pretty high class or, organization and quite well respected? Uh, they also bring uh, businessmen into or in other special groups into Washington and give them a tour and an orientation. They also give an orientation to freshman congressmen. And that would be kind of the the basis for doing this with the judiciary, a different group of the judiciary, but it kind of created a precedent. So you could uh, created a precedent uh, as well with with that annual Brookings seminar, did you? Uh, well, we did, yeah, but it wasn't easy. Uh, Where was that know, in Williamsburg? I'll try not to spend too much time on this, but it's. It is kind of novel. The the uh, Brookings loved the idea. They they were just excited about it. Okay, and they had an employee, Warren Sykins, who was my best friend at Harvard Graduate School, and we actually roomed together in the Frederick Douglass home when we both came to Washington to work in in Congress. Excuse me, now, Dr. Cannon. Is that is that the person that ten years ago on another one of your birthdays you celebrated your birthday with? Yes, yes, we, we were <laughs> lifelong friends. He he saw he he followed all of my dietary preferences, uh, based partly on religion, and I followed his Jewish <laughs> preferences. You know, you eat ice cream before you eat meat, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and uh, so we had a lot we had a lot of fun out of life. <laughs> we, he was a Democrat, I was a Republican, but we got a lot. We were good friends and respected each other's views. And um, so he also worked in the Kennedy White House. Okay, so so um, basically he was uh, thrilled. And of course, 
he gave me assurance that he would be the key person and we could work well, very well together in putting this on if we could get it going. And so he and I went to speak to the top staff member at the House Judiciary Committee, Alan Parker. He loved the idea. He's quite intellectual, and he thought, gee, there are a lot of things I'd really like to learn about the judiciary that are you know, not well known. And he, he loved it. And so he went to the chairman, uh, and and uh, the chairman said, I won't have anything to do with that Nixon appointee. And so he reported back very sadly that uh, it couldn't be done. And uh, so uh, all of our friends in the Justice Department and uh, in the various parts of the judiciary uh, were disappointed, but they, they gave up. I didn't give up. What did you do? What did you do? Way to get this. And uh, so I uh, prayed about it and thought about it. And finally, the name of Judge Ed Ray, who's the chief judge of a special federal court uh, in New York, uh, came, came to my mind. And I thought he might have a, ling a lingual <laughs> and ethnic relationship with the chairman of the House uh, Committee. So I phoned him, and I told him the dilemma. We were already pretty, pretty good friends. And uh, he said, oh, I, I can solve that. He said, we're, we're, we are lifelong friends. And uh, uh, he said, when the next time the Chief Justice comes to New York and uh, is, has the evening free, uh, let me set up a dinner with the chairman and by the end of the dinner, they will be close friends. We did it, and it worked. <laughs> it was amazing. Now, the little side question is, when I, uh, when I got that word from him, you know, it was just a, a, an enormous burden off my shoulders. I, I wanted to quickly tell the Chief Justice about this enormous victory that Ed Ray had provided a, a, a clear way that we had a solid chance of bringing the chairman around. And uh, so so uh, I walked into his office. He was talking with uh, Ken Ripple, who later became a federal judge and a Notre Dame professor. He, uh, and, and I was exuberant about this, and the chief justice smiled happily. And Ken Ripple said, how come Mark Cannon's always lucky? And the Chief Justice said, he makes his luck. <laughs> and that was what happened in this case. Uh, he, he, makes his, he makes his own luck, I think. <laughs> wow. Well, That's I, really if I had something. been saying it, I would have added uh, the addition of uh, divine interest. Now, what would you say, some people would describe it uh, as providential grace, but what would you say would be among your most uh, major accomplishments, uh, in addition to the annual uh, Brookings Seminar on the Judiciary that became quite the talk of, 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 of the, the leadership in, in, the, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the leadership in both branches. Uh, what and, uh, would be the other major 
and, right. and all three branches, including the attorney general. Oh, it was Griffin Bell, and he was very interested, a former judge, and very interested in all these things. Yes, and all three branches, I should say. Yeah. Then what other innovations uh, would you say that you uh, created or envisioned and came to fruition well, under your leadership? created a whole atmosphere that we're looking for better ways. Now, and one of many examples of what came up from this, uh, Judge uh, Cliff Wallace, at uh, one point the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit, came up with the idea that you should you should be able to handle uh, contacts with lawyers on the telephone. Why bring them in and charge their their uh, their uh, clients vast amounts of money while you sit there waiting in line to talk to the judge about some minor matter. Well, that was just one little thing. What about what about atmosphere of the judiciary was let's find better ways. What about the patent case, the patent case load appeals uh, and so forth? What happened there? Well, the the patent load, the patent case came directly out of this new method of meeting once a year. Uh, the subject was, see, one of the, the most uh, almost criminally unjust uh, aspects of patent cases is that, was that it, you, you, wherever you had the case located might depend on its outcome because each of the circuits developed its own patent uh, litigation uh, traditions, and so if you're on one side of a border, state border, you might get a reversal, and on the other side you might win. So, so Dr. Cannon, is yeah. that why? Is that why when the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit was was formed, that in addition to claims, trade, and veterans benefits. Uh, matters on appeal that patents were also then uh, formally uh, added to that federal circuit court of appeals area of responsibility. That's exactly right. You've got it exactly right. Wonderful. That might never have come had we not had that that group that met together and they found that everybody agreed. (laughs) But uh, you just, you know, who pushes those things individually? When you get them all together and they all agree, then mm-hmm. it can just slide right ahead. Now, the, there there were several um, ways that you cultivated new young talent at the court. Uh, what were some of those ways? You had learned a little bit about the White House Fellows Program. Did you do anything sort of uh, to to emulate well that? Yeah, I I, uh, I was you know one of many people who encouraged the White House Program. Uh, you know, years before. Uh, but this is, again, a part of our history. The way we started at the Institute of Public Administration, originally called the, the Bureau of Municipal Research, which was an effort of the rich families of New York to fight Tammany Hall and their, their gross misuse of money. Uh, and and uh, they... they uh, so... Uh, the, 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 how did they start? You know, there there was no 
no defined public administration or municipal administration. They brought in lawyers and uh, accountants primarily and just had them experiment. Like they made the first uh, municipal budget of it was in the country was the health budget of New York City. So, so did you actually create the first Supreme Court Fellows program? That's right. That's right. We uh, and we did it very quickly. I, uh, I I checked the idea with the Chief Justice. He was all for it if I could find where to finance it, and. Uh, so I went to the American Bar Association and asked them for $50,000. I said, I'm, I feel sure we can get the funding for the next year, but we can't, there's no way we can get it for this year. And, and, some uh, of the, and some of the fellows went on to become, I understand, university presidents and others uh, quite uh, prominent in their field. What about the yeah. judicial internship program at the Supreme Court? The, the uh, uh, well, this just, uh, you know, there are uh, some kids who came in who were very talented that summer, their very first summer. I arrived in May, uh, who wanted to work and, and had sources of financing that they were able to handle it because we had no budget we could uh, contribute to them. Uh, and, and they worked out well. Now, uh, I heard Mark, I heard. So we made that into a formal program of four interns, volunteers, uh, every semester and, and every summer. And, and, and uh, okay. One of your one of your first interns I heard was Mark Levin. Is that true? It is true. <laughs> and 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 I think yours truly was one of your last crop of interns with uh, Rick Richmond, who was the one who um, ended up uh, doing the the the, the ghostwriting. I think some of it or the research for uh, Justice uh, Rehnquist's book on the Constitution before President Reagan uh, nominated him to be chief, I think. Is, is that what what happened? Uh, well, Rick Richmond uh, helped yeah, do that. I, I, uh, but anyway, yes, it was. Well, um, let, let me say that uh, some of the interns have had extraordinary careers. Uh, just mentioning one, probably the best known uh, business professor in the world is one of our interns who is a professor at Harvard and who changed the whole thinking of the way companies succeed to the fact that they have to disrupt. And uh, you'll hear that word disrupt all the time now when you're, when you're talking about a, a new company. Uh, now, Dr. Cannon, would you um, forgive me? We're going to need to take a quick commercial sure. break here, and we will sure. be right back with Dr. Mark W. Cannon on the UnitedInstitute.org World Podcast. Do you love your lawyer? Jeffrey G. Nutt & Associates PLLC uses the law to help businesses and individuals throughout the world. Visit jnutlaw.com or call 248 248- 2201501 unitedinstitute.org is pleased to offer a series of self-paced online courses and simulations that help professionals become effective, productive and creative. Visit unitedinstitute.org. Welcome back to the unitedinstitute.org world podcast. We're talking with Mark 
Cannon, Dr. Mark W. Cannon, the first incumbent to the position of administrative assistant, now counselor to the Chief Justice of the United States. At the time, Chief Justice Warren E. Berger. Dr. Cannon, you remember how Chief Justice Berger considered religious liberty to be such an important part of the Constitution. Was that something that was very important to you as well, and is it important to you? Well, it's one of the most important things in the world to me. Uh, I believe religion, uh, people deserve freedom of religion as the founders determined by placing it first in the list of personal rights in the First Amendment. Does, was does freedom does, of religion before freedom of speech, assembly, uh, and the press? Uh, and they found it from view that way, and I, 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 I understand why, and I think that makes sense. Now, uh, Dr. Cannon, do you believe that the First Amendment protects more than just religious thought? Some well, people actually well, wonder about whether it does. What do you think? Well, I do. You know, it's it's hard to uh, differentiate between religion and non-religion in many areas because they're both cultural and religious uh, elements. But uh, if you take the freedom of religion literally, as uh, Madison did, as uh, uh, actually Franklin did, uh, and he did not have any involvement with the Constitution directly because he was in France uh, and uh, so forth. You could go through a long list of all of them, uh, those founders attributing the victory of, this, of the war against the British to divine intervention and divine help. And Dr. Kennedy, do you, do you believe then, are you saying that you believe it involves more than just thought, that, that freedom of religion includes religious action then? Is that really what uh, you're also saying? Yes, and, and the wording could not be interpreted otherwise. Now, the did wording, the chief the, the court change the, the wording to freedom of thought? Uh, basically, kind of in in, in uh, a way, uh, it, it's it's the opposite of what it was intended to be. Because you don't need a, a constitution for freedom of thought. You can think whatever you want. It's only the action that gets the, you know, bumps into problems. Now, but here's a question that's, that's true. Dr. Cannon, uh, did you ever find yourself in, in, in an exchange with the Chief Justice where he ever presented you with uh, a hypothetical religious liberty question seeking your opinion in a matter that may have been relevant to the outcome of a of a say of a, of a case with similar facts or circumstances. Was there ever an occasion of that nature? Well, uh, my position uh, dealt with everything in his. He has 
more than 40 uh, statutes of responsibility uh, that uh, I dealt with all of them and all of his you know, personal decisions, where he was going to speak, where he was going to talk on, all that kind of thing, uh, and ideas for modernizing the court system. Uh, and, and so I didn't uh, get into the, the case details, although there was no reason if he wanted me to, I couldn't. Be. He could use his own employees as he wanted. It is interesting that when, in the first year I was there, they had a major freedom of religion case. And this was with the Amish, Wisconsin v. Yoder. And it was whether the Amish children had to attend uh, high school in addition to attending elementary school. They were willing to attend elementary school, but their long tradition was uh, they, they didn't want them to uh, get too involved with the, uh, the secular uh, system of education into adulthood. And uh, that's a tough question because you might be depriving the children uh, and yet you're allowing religious freedom to, that had long existed to continue. And uh, so he and, and Joseph Blackman called me in to ask my views <laughs> as a younger person uh, and we talked about all kinds of things, including the, the growing use of the, the drugs in high schools. And, you know, it wasn't all good, even though there was much good. And uh, the fact that within their community, their Amish community, they were learning many trades. Uh, they were thriving at community as, and as workers in agriculture and selling things and many modern manufacturing of things. And uh, so uh, uh, my my own view was it's okay. And uh, that's the way they were inclined. And they finally came out that way and they convinced the whole court. They had a unanimous court. Isn't that wonderful? Now, Dr. Cannon, uh, you have lived uh, a number of years now and you have stayed quite healthy. On uh, personal note, can you tell us a little bit about how you stay so healthy? Well, one thing is I have a wonderful wife <laughs> who worked hard at cooking good food. And we have things like uh, green uh, powder, dehydrated green vegetables, which taste much better when I drink virtually every morning in addition to other vegetables that we eat during the day. And we have a cookbook with uh, a healthy uh, cook uh, recipes. And uh, she pulls that out every once in a while to get variety. Do you and, smoke? Uh, what? You don't smoke either, do you? No, we don't smoke. That's <laughs> the drug. We don't uh, drink, we don't drink coffee. Uh, and we've minimized the drinking of uh, sodas. Sodas are much worse for people than than gets advertised or gets told. Damaging and sugar is damaging. Now, do you do any sugar. physical? Do you do any physical exercise? Lots. We we live in in a complex that's seven point seven miles around, and uh, it's a gated community and. 
we walk around the outskirts of that uh, frequently, and we go to the gym frequently, and we usually we walk at the gym also, but they also have all the muscle machines, and I go around there for about uh, 20 to 30 minutes. Now you've obviously made a, you've obviously made a decision to be fit and, and healthy in your life. What would you say would be the very most important decision of your life? Well, well, for, first of all, just to say that uh, the the uh, to summarize our discussion on the health, health is a choice. Now, most people don't want to say that. Or believe that because that puts the responsibility on them but most people know most of the things that you do that are healthy and they choose not they try it and it's a little too burdensome or time-consuming or they forget to do it or whatever but they refuse to follow up okay now the question of yes the greatest decision of my, my life when right. I was 21 I had accepted a mission call uh, for two and a half years to Argentina. And shortly after I got there, uh, my Spanish was still not, not very good. And I decided to speak in Spanish to a congregation. And I wrote the speech because I thought I needed that. Uh, I was reading, I'd been reading for years, uh, scriptures, everything works. Uh, and listening to great talks and uh, uh, seriously thinking about you know how important religion was and uh, I read some something there that were just resulted in a an outpour of the Holy Ghost and in my mind there was no doubt no uncertainty uh, it clearly this was following the commandments of Jesus Christ was the most important thing in the world to do. Very and, profound. Very profound. I've never, I've never changed from that. Now you were in Argent, you were in Argentina uh, yeah. at the time. Now yeah. that and that then, was. And I got up. I I tore up my my written speech and got up and just spoke under the influence of the Holy Ghost in a language of fluently that I had really not been that good in. So that was a little that bit was of the gift of tongues. The Spanish uh, language, uh, obviously. Uh, yeah. The, the uh, most famous Latina in the world at the time, I think, was there. In, in Argentina, the, the woman named Evita, uh, the, who's, who's, who inspired the song, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Did you actually see her in person when you were there? Yeah, they they made themselves very visible. <laughs> Both of them wanted it either. And uh, yeah, we really took off time for things like that. But, uh, but uh, no. have giant parades, uh, and we did, and we saw them. Now, being a Fulbright, I had, I, I'm curious to know if you could comment on the, the um, the leadership of the president of, of Argentina during uh, um, uh, the time that you were there. President Perez, I think his name was. Perón. 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 Yeah. That was Evita's husband. Well, 
it's a, it's an example for us. Uh, we've been following it, uh, but it's basically take all your wealth and and use it for political purposes. And uh, how did that pan out? Well, they finally did go bankrupt, which we risked doing at some point. Uh, so they they, they went they they went bankrupt, and and, and people hmm. were without food and without uh, 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 virtually anything. They're trying to find a little amounts of food that were left over. And Argentina was a very rich country in food. Uh, now, you're, you're one of the richest countries in the world after World War II uh, because they sold to both sides of the war at high mm. prices and they have wonderful beef and other other meats and uh, uh, they uh, uh, then Peron was always trying to uh, push him up higher and so he bought the railroads well the railroads were not a good buy they were they had a lot of maintenance costs. Uh, they were barely profitable, if at all, uh, under even uh, tight management. And so you, Ron obviously didn't have tight management. He gave jobs to everybody, and just uh, gradually reduced the, the treasure uh, to uh, nothing. So your 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 suggestion would have been that they needed perhaps a, an institute for public administration to. Sort of fine-tune the leadership uh, on on certain levels. That's perhaps. right. And, now, and what with, a, with an approach to thrift. <laughs> now, what about um, your your dissertation? I know that you wrote your doctorate in in public administration at at Harvard. Uh, it required that you have special access to the diary of a very prominent leader. Who was that leader? Well, that leader was George Q. Cannon, who was my grandfather. Now, he was born 101 years before I was, so uh, he was back down in the early, earlier periods. He was uh, generally thought to be the most influential Mormon leader after Brigham Young in the 1850s and 1900 period. Now he was also he was also a delegate to Congress, wasn't he? Yes, for ten years, 1872 to 1892. No, I, I came down from New York at 1972, just one a century later. Isn't that something? Now I heard there's another relative of yours, an ancestor, whose statue in Utah's state capitol is going to be relocated to Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol next year. Is that's that right. true? Uh, that's right. Uh, 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 Doctor Doctor Cannon has uh, 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 was the first woman elected to the U.S. elected to the Utah State uh, Senate. First woman elected to any state senate in the United States some 20 years before women even voted in most states. Utah was the first state in which women actually voted. Wyoming enacted the law just a couple of months before, but Utah had an election. And, now, uh, wow. Last week, you, you actually were celebrating the publication online of, of, of the diary of 
of your your grandfather, which I think was what uh, was it? It was quite substantial, and it was published on the World Wide Web. Is that true? That's true. Uh, the, the historians have been working on this. One of them is a volunteer, a former uh, professor in North, North, North Carolina, uh, and for he he sought, volunteered for one year and got so interested in it, he stayed on for four more years. Voluntary service for five years to get those journals in perfect order uh, to to be published. I mean, no spelling errors, although George Kenzo, though unschooled professionally, was very well educated, and he, he wrote his daily journals for 52 years. And, My uh, goodness. They didn't have many uh, many typing errors to perfect, but they had to check every word. They wanted this to be an excellent job. It was a million words. It'll be more than a million words, and, and it is more two, than two a million. Two and a half million. Two and a half million words, and again, his name, I'm sure it'll be easy to find the diary of George Q, as in quail, Q. U-A-Y-L-E, Canon, online. And uh, speaking of notable you publications. You check any particular page. You, know, I mean, <laughs> you can check an, uh, a word. We tried it. You check a word and it takes in the exact page. And then, Wonderful. Now, can you recommend a book, a book to our listeners that perhaps has has been something that you have found I, to I be think, helpful. I think a book that everybody uh, who has kind of interest in you have uh, should be aware of and possibly read is American Grace. A few years ago it was put out and it uh, says the, how religion divides and Unites Us, by Robert Putnam, a professor at Notre Dame, and David Campbell, a professor at Harvard. And this has gotten uh, ex excellent comments from people. But the Wall Street Journal Review, for example, says that, that uh, after a parade of anti-religious books blaming religions for everything in the world, we finally get a book that is top quality in scholarship, and it's positive. And That's it's wonderful. And you are such a positive person. I understand you even posted a testimony of your faith online somewhere. Was that uh, at Fair Mormon, F-A-I-R Mormon, and then they just look at your name, Mark W. Cannon, and people can see that there? Is that, is that uh, that's, where that's, your that's true. story that's true. is? And now, uh, uh, what do you have any, any other electronic or online resource that you wanted to uh, offer to our well, listeners? You know, I think uh, there, there are a lot of good electronic resources, and anybody wanting to go can just Google and then find the one that has the type of information that they're interested in, because they tend to be different from each other. 
the one that obviously is very good and most people know about is Beckett. Um, they have a long tradition and, and they fight for individual cases. They're the one that brought the uh, the uh, poor, poor sisters, sisters of the poor. Sisters of the, of the anyway, poor. That case, for example, mm -hmm. got it to the Supreme Court, and they take uh, many others too. They have for, until recently, there were too, too many children burdened her, and she couldn't stay anymore. But uh, she, uh, they had Hannah Smith uh, working there, who was. Uh, uh, close to me and, and uh, she's the only woman who has ever been a clerk, a full-time clerk to two justices. Um, and uh, she, as I say, resigned now to take care mm -hmm. of her growing family. Now, when, when you were at the court uh, and needing some valuable quotes, for speech for you or for the chief, I remember you would say, "We need a nugget. Give us a nugget." <laughs> what what type of nugget or quote would you like to leave for our listeners today on this special day, your birthday? Well, you know, uh, I I have uh, you're right, and I have lots of nuggets, but I'm not sure which one I would choose right now. So, You're not sure which one? Yeah. May I may I may I refer to one that I've heard you reference, and that was the one that came from Judge Howard Markey. Oh yes, yes. Let's uh, yeah. deal with that. Yeah, uh, a, a very devout Roman Catholic, uh, the Chief Judge of the Court of Appeal, right. the Federal Circuit. And a very good friend. A very good friend of all religions, uh, and. Uh, he, uh, as a judge, and as a you know, Catholic, he was frequently asked to marry young people. And he had rules about this. And he asked people uh, first to join in for an interview as a pair, and then individually. And individually, they had to say the right answer to his key question, they could talk as long as they wanted, try as many things as they wanted, but sometime they had to come to it. Or he wouldn't marry him. And he's never had a divorce. Okay, uh, the, so what do you think is the question? Well, <laughs> actually, you know, they say, well, I love him. <laughs> and, and uh, or, you know, he's gonna be a great provider. But most answers are really selfish. It was the, well, the question. He, he is, are you are you talking about? You're talking about he would ask them point blank. You have to tell me why and give me the correct answer why you want to marry this person. Right, and and you can be, there can be a lot of other answers, but at some point this answer has to be stated from your mind, or I won't marry you. And the answer is because I can make her happy. or I can make him happy. And that's an amazing record, no divorces. But it's whether people think 
mainly of themselves, and you know, they're kind of grabbing all the things that they'll get, or whether they're thinking of trying to benefit the other person they're marrying, which also brings happiness. But I mean, uh, the, the, they don't necessarily do it just for personal happiness. They do it because it's a wonderful thing to help make somebody happy. Well, Dr. Kennett, you have made so many people happy in life, including this person, yours truly, Jeffrey Nutt, and countless others, coast to coast, and many who've gone around the world to have an impact on our world and make it a better place. We thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you for your service, for your leadership, your being such a great role model for so many of us. And we thank you for your time today, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode of the UnitedInstitute.org World Podcast. Happy birthday, Dr. Cannon. This is fun. I admire you for the initiative that you've taken to create this and make, help educate and uh, make happy other people yourself. Happy birthday. I'd be glad to, to come back. Okay. Take care now.